Hey, everybody. We're talking to Ed Norwood today. What an amazing guy. He's a husband, a father, a thought leader, speaker, author, and president and founder of ERN. Has some incredible stories about life and business. He's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, I have a great guest today who's got one of my favorite titles of a book called Be a Giant Killer, Ed Norwood. Welcome to the show, Ed. Hey, Dallas, thank you, man. Here in Southern California, it's sunny, but it's cold. It's about 50 degrees. It's a blizzard, but we're making it. <laughs> You're hanging in there. <laughs> I, lo- I love Southern California. It's so beautiful. And I'd love to hear, just tell our listeners, what is ERN? Where you're, wh- what are you doing now? You've got books out. You speak. Just tell us, tell us what Ed Norwood's into these days. Hey, thank you. Just once, I want to just share with you, just excited and humbled to really share this platform with you. Thank you for making it available to me this morning. Earn Enterprises, we've been in business for about 23 years and it is my second business. My first company, I started at the age of 19, made a lot of money, made a lot of mistakes, Mm. lost that business. And in the season of loss, learned a lot of things. So when I was 18 years old, before I started that company, I worked for a millionaire named Jay Abraham. And he was a marketing consultant. Dallas, this guy had seminars that he charged $30,000 per person. This was back then. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. Probably over 30 years ago. (laughs) And just told you, over 30 years ago. And he had 300 people in this event. And I was just this guy Friday. Took his car down the street to wash his Lexus. Him and his GM, Bill Clark. And he taught his attendees how to create a USP, a unique selling proposition. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of unique selling proposition before. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, yeah. So I built my entire company around this unique selling proposition for Domino's. It was 30 minutes or it's free. Yep. Yeah. Uh, For Nordstrom, for the most part, it's, you can buy it, spray it for seven days. As long as you have that barcode at the very bottom, you can Bring it back. You can bring it that back. Their USB, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I used that strategy to build my first business, created a USP, a triple in dollars. And the amount of money I saw, I just wasn't ready for it. Oh, and, wow. Um, learned a lot in the transition of working for people again before I started this organization. We're now 23 years strong and have the ability to really pour into a lot of great healthcare providers, we advocate for medically appropriate healthcare. So we challenge HMOs that make negligent medical necessity decisions. Oh, wow. 
That's amazing. Now, we got to jump back a little bit there because you, you skipped a lot. I love how you transitioned, and thank you for kind of opening up and sharing where you've kind of where you started. 19 years old, that's, that is really young to be starting a business. Did working with Jay Abraham, did he inspire you in some way to want to go out and do something on your own? Or were you just, you always kind of had this burning itch of entrepreneurship and leadership? What was it like early on as a young entrepreneur? Really, the first inspiration I would have to say is probably my mom. She was in ministry for herself mm. and very independent. I grew up kind of with the mindset, if you want something done, do it yourself. Mm. Wasn't the best mindset for marriage, but anyway, different story. <laughs> <laughs> we get trained and, out uh, of that. If you've been uh, married for a long time, yes, you get trained yes, out of that. <laughs> yes. But yet watching her really inspired me to be an entrepreneur. And I just really learned, I've learned this, that everything has compensation. And so in the seasons of my life where I wasn't sure the direction I was going, wasn't sure if I was accumulating what I wanted at that stage of my career, mm. man, I was becoming something. And even in the mistakes, the losses, mm. I really feel that I matured quite a bit yeah. to the man I am now, but it was quite challenging. You know, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at 19. And I'm grateful that the grace of God kind of just covered me in those seasons where I made a ton of mistakes that affected people. So how long were you in that original business that you started at 19? About seven years. Wow. And it's ironic that I was, well, let's see, 19. Yeah, but seven years. I lost the business two weeks after I was married. Ooh. And so the business that I promised my in-laws would oh. take care of their daughter was gone. <laughs> and really God was just dealing with the, some prideful areas in my life where I had to go through a season that I call the wilderness, the season of temporary confusion where nothing is working, mm. where you're planting, reaping nothing, it seems. Yes. And learning in that moment that you have to unlearn and relearn some things mm. to get yourself to the next chapter of life. And so I kind of went through that, but Again, just grateful. I'm not where I want to be, but certainly not where I used to be. I'm grateful for the process. Yeah. That's awesome. I've taken to this stage. I love that. I think that's so true. I think that if you are leading people or you're leading yourself, that life is never, even though we want it to be, even we want our lives to be that up and to the right, just that straight line trajectory. It never is. It's like, side turns and circles and you just never know where so you even though you're trying to just have this consistency sometimes you get curveballs that you can't control and some that you can i'd love to talk to you about the wilderness and your wilderness experience and as you go as you kind of transitioned out of that original business in was that how did you manage that transition how did you manage that with your family your new family how did you manage that what was that like when you say you had to earn unlearn some things. What did that look like for you? Well, I got my first credit card at 18 Dallas and it was $500. And I remember I was working for a company, hadn't gone into business yet. And I told the coworkers, Hey, I'm going to take you out to lunch. Got my first credit card. It was an older lady named Paula Strode. He pulled me to the side and said, don't you do that. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy. I'm fine. I'm taking everyone out to lunch. We're going to have a good time. 
And little did I know that decision would lead me in a downhill of bad decisions, mm. of making poor financial decisions. And my, my credit got to a place where it was at 500. Oh, and I've wow. learned over the course of time that you can't pray a bad credit score up. <laughs> That's awesome. I, 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 listen, I had to make some different decisions. Mm. I had to pay some things off. Yeah. There were some things I had to dispute that were labeling me that were incorrect. And I had to change my payment history. And by changing those patterns of history, I was able to change my destiny. So my credit score is now 750. There you go. 760, maybe, on a good day. <laughs> and people can't even see that it used to be 500 unless they watched the last 10%. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's the they, thing. They, they, won't even, they won't even know that because, man, we can make redemptive decisions in our life so that regardless of what our history is, we leave a different legacy. Mm. So I went through wilderness. I was on welfare. I was in couches grabbing change, going to the green coin star machine. And I went through an embarrassing time where I couldn't take care of my family. I couldn't wow. buy Christmas presents for my children. And again, just in that season where I became nothing, sometimes you don't realize all you need is God until all you have is God. No. And I was in that place of my life and just, man, grew up. I grew up from this little boy that threw tantrums and tried to act as if he was invincible mm. and bulletproof into a man that God could use. And my wife would probably attest that I'm still becoming that man. I'm still on the <laughs> altar. I'm still getting there, but I'm grateful for that wilderness season that matured me. I love that. And I love how you talked about, you just took ownership of so much of your routines and like how those routines contributed to essentially the loss of the business and just the financial ruin of your credit and so many other things. And then you just kind of, kind of got to this kind of sounds like a rock bottom place and you started a trajectory that was in a different direction. Can you talk about, I like, thought it couldn't, I, could, I thought it could never affect, I thought that my decisions would never catch up with me. Oh, really? That was so going into that, you're like, I can do this. Kind of like you said, invincible. I'm good. I'll figure it out. Yeah. This kid on the, on, on the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, who died twice and they brought him back to life. Yeah. I was watching Ryan Clark on ESPN and he said something that I really resonated with. He said, when I was 24, I didn't even know I could die. That's so and true. So, though. As, so true. As, yeah. I mean, as men, it's intrinsic in our masculinity to think that we're bulletproof, to think that we're invincible and can do things without consequence and overcome things in our own strength or willpower. We don't often admit the things that are stronger than us, mm. that we are imprisoned, mm. that we're addicted, that we're traumatized or misunderstood. And too often we minimize the effect of family dysfunction or the effect of trauma, the effect of mistakes that we've made for years. But we can't outdo the trauma and the mistakes and fill the gaps of our life with things that distract or inundate us. We can't outwork what happened to us in a gym That's so true. or outwork what happened to us at an office or drown it with alcohol or sex or addiction. Yeah. We can't build a business 
over the pain. And really, that's why I wrote the book, Be a Giant Killer, to identify the hurts and the triggers that kept rearing its head in our lives mm. that were sabotaging our dreams to show people that regardless of what has been written in history and what people have labeled them by, we can edit chapters. <laughs> we can... We, we can change the labels or the narratives that people have placed upon us mm. because God is a master screenwriter. Mm. And no matter what segment of our life that we're in, he can write a sequel that was better. Watch this. He can write a franchise like Fast and Furious <laughs> that continues <laughs> into the next so generation cool. and keeps getting better. And so really that was the inspiration of taking my life story wow. and showing people how they can transform theirs. Oh, that's awesome. So... To be a giant killer is a life story. Is your life story? That's what the that's what the book is about. And just kind of walking through that's that's awesome. And I love how you frame that up. I love how you talk about editing segments and rewriting scripts. And I think that sometimes that people get trapped, like you said, in a pattern of thinking that mm -hmm. that keeps them existing in the past. It's like it's like Groundhog Day over and over again because they've made a mistake. They've gone somewhere. They've done something that was a blunder. It was just a miss. And then whether it's shame, guilt, fear, anxiety, whatever it is, it's like that view of the past is so great that they lose sight of a different, more hopeful future. And I think it keeps them there. And I think that's one of the things about anyone that's leading people in an organization. One of the things that you're, as a leader, you're trying to do is not only inspire people to the mission, the vision values of the organization, whether it's a business or nonprofit or ministry, anything like that, you're also inspiring people to hope. You're inspiring people to believe that they can be better, to improve, that their situation is improving, that they're moving forward. And so I love how you framed that up and how you kind of, kind of looked at that and said, we can edit scripts we can change the ending and that God is that script writer. And if we do our part, like you said, and you couldn't pray your way out of the 500, but if you put in that and you change those behaviors, it's amazing. It's amazing what transpires. You know? we, we really under, I can't agree with you more. We really underestimate how family history impacts everything that we do. The, work, the book Be a Giant Killer is a dive into how the Israelite nation had to conquer seven giants to get to their promised land. And each of the giants were related to really is a book on diving into some of the things that are related to our family history that's impeding us from reaching or accomplishing our wildest dreams. We have a tendency to carry shame for what others have done to us, things beyond our circumstance or beyond our control, rather, that happened to us when we were children. Or watch this, we have a tendency of giving people what others have given to us. Mm. Experts say that 80 to 90% of how we observe things occurs by the age of five or six. Wow. wow. Just imagine that for a moment. Mm. How we love and how we forgive, how we process pain and conflict. We started that trajectory or downhill motion of how we did that from the age of five or six. Our kids have been watching us and we have been watching our caregivers for years. Mm -hmm. And so our history shapes 
our relationships, how we respond to people, places, and things. Our histories, our hurts, and our insecurities can often produce lifelong triggers. Sometimes when we're responding to a person in our present, we're really speaking to someone in our past who hurt us, mm. who abandoned us, yeah. who didn't validate us. And when there is unresolved trauma, it's intrinsic rather in our human nature to preemptively react so history doesn't repeat itself. I'm a recovering helicopter parent. <laughs> and man, I was a great encourager when I was younger with my kids, Dallas, mm -hmm. but I wasn't a great comforter. And for the most part, when I was growing up in high school, my mom traveled for ministry. So if I was sick, I had to make myself chicken soup. Right, right. If I didn't feel like going to school, I had to tell myself, get up, it's time to go to school. If I was right. watching television and I had homework, I had to tell myself, hey, turn the TV off. It's time to work on your studies. Yeah. I had to will myself because I didn't have a comforter in the home per se. Right. I had to encourage myself that despite not having a parent in the home with me, that I could accomplish incredible things. I think by the age of 16, I had a, an advice column called Dear Ed instead of Dear Abby. I love it. And here I was, Dallas, trying to encourage 16 and 17 year olds with the courage I needed mm. to show up every single day. Mm. So I raised my kids. If they were going through something and they were, and they were sick, I was the one saying to them, hey, you can, you're more than a conqueror. You can do exceedingly and abundantly and far right. above what you ask, dream, think, hope, or imagine. If they had a sickness and they were going to miss a big test or a big game the next day, I was pushing them and praying over them and telling them that you'll be fine. You have to push through it. But rarely did I sit on the edge of their bed and say to them, hey, I know you've studied really hard for tomorrow and prepared really hard for tomorrow. It must be crushing you that you may not make it, that you can't make it. How are you doing with that? Mm. And that's where in this season of my life, I've begun to excavate unresolved hurts that I feel my kids might, may have carried from childhood mm. into adulthood. Mm. And I'm going back and I'm having conversations saying, hey, son, when you were 14 and dad made you do this in front of the entire team and in front of your coach, I was wrong for that. Mm. I was angry. I was prideful. Should have never happened. Will you ever forgive me for that? Because we transmit the traumas and the fears we don't heal to the next generation. That is so powerful. And I think it's so challenging to any parent that's listening to the last 10%, because I love how you approach the challenge that you kind of put out in front of yourself. You've recognized something. And you've laid out a really difficult scenario where you were growing up and, and having to kind of will yourself to, to win and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go and do it. And it's in your experience came with its own challenges and you didn't have that person. But then I love how you took that and said, OK, that's not good enough because a lot of people stop. And I think this is important. To our listeners, self-awareness is huge. You were just talking about a lot about self-awareness. Is like, how do you, how well do you know yourself? And you're looking backwards, you're looking inside, you're looking outside, 
you're talking to people. And then once you discovered, hey, look, I've got this wound from my past that has caused me to make certain decisions that I was unaware of, right? Most yes. people would say, yes, I see it. Oh, man, I hate that. And then they would stop there and they would either feel sorry for themselves or be like, well, it's not my fault or they'd make excuses. So they've got that self-awareness piece. But I love how you went the next step and said, so what am I going to do about it? I'm gonna go and I'm gonna or go they, and, and I'm gonna go and, and get them, and I'm gonna get yeah, my son. And we're yeah, gonna have some I mean, conversations. We're gonna fix this. We're gonna work on this. And they're really hard conversations because I came from a generation where children were to be seen and not heard, right? And oftentimes, in our generation, we'll hear people say things like, "Well, I did the best that I could," and that's not good enough. Yeah, yeah. Or we'll say things like, "Well, it is what it is." It is what no, it is, right? <laughs> it is what we, our people, have made it. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so I, I've learned over the course of years in this season of my life that it's important to have hard conversations, speak the love and truth, but have hard conversations. I was on a show one time and someone said, one of the most difficult conversations you can have is with yourself. And I said to them, I'm not sure if I agree, <laughs> but if I were going to agree, I think the second most difficult conversation to have, if they're living, is with your parents. Having the ability to say, I wasn't raised with a dad, Dallas, so sure. I had a conversation. I mustered up the courage to have a conversation with my dad and said to him, hey, dad, why weren't you in my life when I was growing up? Mm. I really needed a father when I went through this at 16 and this at 17. Why didn't you and mom make it? I just wanted to know what my family history was. Hmm. And God kind of warned me before I did this, you may not get the answer that you want. But he responded and said, son, I'm not even sure if I'm your father. Good gracious. And I was angry at first, Dallas. Yeah. And then I tried to counsel his bad family history or his family history and wonder how his dad was with him. But after a while, I begin to realize that I can't heal the family history of other people. I'm responsible for the next generation. Yes. What I do in my life right. affects them. And having those hard conversations may not, because you'll talk yourself out of it. You'll say oh, things yeah. like, it doesn't matter. They're never going to change. Shut up. Don't say anything. Just All ignore right. them. Yeah. But here's the thing. Having those hard conversations, they never change them mm. or change the circumstance. But it allows your voice to be heard. Yeah. And when you allow your voice to be heard, the little boy and little girl in you matures faster, mm. heals faster, tantrums decrease, no longer silent, mm. no longer violent. Right. Ah, that's true. That's great. I love that. And I think that's such good wisdom for leading your family or leading a team in an organization because those really difficult conversations, we may try to avoid them. We may try to dismiss them. We may try to justify why we don't need to have them, why it's the other person's fault. And we might say, and it might be justifiable in the sense that they, we could say, well, if we're going to sit down and talk to this team member, we're going to talk to our kid, they're not going to change. I'm going to tell them this. And I'm just wasting my time, but it's not a waste of time. Like you just said, it's not a waste of time because when we say it, we hear ourselves saying it and we know we're speaking the truth 
We know we're trying to yes. develop someone. We're trying to, to heal a relationship, repair, repair some damage that's been done, whether it's our fault or theirs, we're coming to the table. And I think if we're changed, then it definitely changes the dynamic because it changes us. So even if the person doesn't change, it's worth the exercise because it changes you. I think that's I yes. think that's fantastic advice. And you really think about it by having that conversation with him. It changes you. It affects every relationship connected to you because you don't grow up. I heard someone say this some years ago that the heart knows no time. Mm. That's why something that happened to you 20 years ago can feel like it just took place yesterday. Oh, that's, that's good. Because we have to rewire our hearts. That's why a 50-year-old man can throw a five-year-old tantrum. Right, right. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. Right. Or a 40-year-old woman who was abused as a child has trusting issues as an adult. Mm. And so our hearts are like black boxes. When you think of a black box, you think of that indestructible piece of metal underneath a pilot seat. Mm. And Dallas, this black box is profound because it can withstand catastrophic disaster and still remember. <laughs> That's it awesome. remembers the good. Yeah. Welcome to United. We'll have a six-hour flight to South Carolina. Movie in the cabin. Uh, movies in the cabin. Food in the food in the cabin. Put your feet up. Enjoy the flight. Right. It remembers the bad. Mayday. Mayday. Fire in the cockpit. Prepare for a crash landing. And even if this plane plunges, God forbid, into the ocean and breaks up in pieces, and hundreds of people die. The government will send divers past the debris and the chaos to find this little black box to find out what happened because it remembers. And that's our heart. It remembers the good, every celebration, every achievement. It remembers the bad, every betrayal, every abandonment, every rejection. And if we don't spend time to rewire that heart mm. and to give that heart expression, the little boy and little girl in us never grows up. Mm. I think that's so powerful. I've never heard that analogy before, but I love it. I love that idea of the black box and the heart doesn't really recognize time. It just is. And I think that is fascinating. I really do. I think that's so true. And I think that it's interesting because that is what we're spending time with when you're working on 
either yourself or you're working on a relationship with someone else or you're working on a team, you're having to unpack a lot of stuff. And you talk about mm -hmm. unpacking a lot of, if you're going to therapy or you're seeing a coach or you're just talking to a friend or a pastor or whatever, you're unpacking a lot of stuff. And the reason is that you want to move forward and you want to keep going. And yet you've got this recorder inside of you that if you don't get rewired, it just, it makes it much more difficult to move forward. I think that's really interesting. I love that. I love that yes. analogy. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with our listeners today. So let's talk about this because you've, we were talking a little bit before the show, speaking of family history. You have an amazing story about your family and kind of a tragedy that, that you had a lot of people a part of. What Would you mind sharing that with us today? Yeah, I lost 27 relatives in the Jonestown Diana tragedy behind Jim Jones mm. back in 1978. And tell everybody what seven... that is, because some people may not even know what that is. Yeah, in 1978, cult leader Jim Jones led about 900 people to a remote South African jungle. He promised to create a paradise on earth. And really in the process, Dallas, he had gained the trust of thousands of people. He had politicians in his pulpit. The president of the United States, the first lady was in his pulpit. Mayors were in his pulpit. He had positions over housing units in, in San Francisco. And as a result, he convinced 900 people to migrate from America to South America to promise them a land free of hate, of racism, of prejudice. When they arrived, it was a concentration camp. He had them in the fields picking cotton in many areas. He didn't feed them. He malnourished them. And... When they all arrived, they confiscated their passports so they couldn't leave. Good. So a congressman named Leo Ryan visited the jungle right on November 17th to see if people were held beyond their will. And reluctantly, some people came forward and agreed to leave the day of. They were terrified. Some of the survivors stated they were terrified to say they wanted to leave the day before, fearing they wouldn't last the night. So the morning of, a few of them said, we'll go. We want to leave. And Jim Jones ordered the assassination of Congressman Ryan, killed several people on the airstrip, and then ordered the deaths of 900 people by saying to them they were going to drink cyanide-laced flavor aid to their deaths. And the autopsy report showed that 90% of the people who died were actually killed by injection of cyanide Bullets are crossbows to the back or the chest because they wouldn't take it. That is so tragic. That's where the phrase Dallas comes, don't drink the Kool-Aid. For years, I've hated the phrase because it's really the front page and not the backstory of what take place. Jonestown was the single loss of U.S. civilian lives before 9-11. Oh, my goodness. I did not realize and, that, um, man. Yeah, it was. And the backstory is this, though. How did almost a 1,000 people get to Jonestown? Families following families. Right. Mothers following grandmothers. Children following parents into the jungles. And that's where the premise and the synopsis of the book comes in terms of trying to be aware of how fatal family history 
can be. The children, about a third of the victims of Jonestown were children. Oh my gosh. And these children were radiant jewels for us to showcase to the world. And on that day, almost 45 years ago this year, purpose and legacy and doctors and attorneys and presidents and scientists and history makers, future moms and dads died in that jungle. And although I use biblical and personal stories of giants we face and be a giant killer, it's not a religious read, it's a radical read. It reminds us not to stay into relationships with anyone where our fifth amendment rights are violated. The people of Jonestown, they built this infrastructure into this jungle on soil that would later become their graveyards. That's awful. That is so awful. And so you said 27 members of your family was in that and tragically lost their life. Absolutely. Seven of them close cousins. I had a grandma who I loved, who I saw her the night before she left for Jonestown packing. And I was grabbing hold to her waist, asking her not to leave and never saw her again. Mm. Never saw her again. That is a tragedy. Did your mom think about potentially going with the grandmother or is that was she just, nope, I'm not, this is not my deal. This is a powerful story. My mom's gift saved my life. Mm. She began to have prophetic dreams that Jim Jones was going to kill our family in a jungle, telling our family members this dream. And eventually Jim Jones put a hit out on me and her and said that he would kill her if she didn't stop saying what she was saying. And she actually came off the road, hid me in a suburb called Daly City because she had a, also a vision that there would be a kidnapping plot for some of the children. And sure enough, my seven cousins, my uncle came home from work. He was a butcher at Petrini's in San Francisco. He came home, his house was ransacked. His wife was gone. His kids were gone. Never saw them again. Oh. So her gift literally spared my life. I should have been one of the kids kidnapped into Jonestown. Oh my God. And this all happened in the U.S., though. These, the, they, these were kidnappings that were made in yes. the U.S. and then taken. That's, yes. That is mind. And he, put, and he actually did put out a threat to, to hurt or kill you and your mom. He actually did yes. that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's incredible. And, and it was he, he really paralyzed people with fear. Mm. I remember as a young kid going into the People's Temple, and there was an eerie, dark feeling in the air. And a young boy, couldn't be more than five or six, had broken a young girl's leg while roughhousing. And his punishment was three rounds with an eight or nine-year-old boy who pounded him into unconsciousness. Good gracious day. And in between rounds, the eight or nine-year-old boy would go and get a drink from Jim Jones while this little five-year-old boy sat slumped over into another corner. And I remember watching that and reflecting back on how he used the fear of that to intimidate people, to tell them that no matter who you are and what you do, if you misbehave, what happened to him will happen to you. And that's what family history tends to do. It tends to intimidate us with things that have happened prior to that. So that if you lost a father to a massive heart attack, at the age of 50, around 50, you become frightened that perhaps oh, yeah. the same thing will 
happened to you. Yeah, yeah. Jim Jones stole families and dreamers who wanted a better life than the racism and the segregation and the dysfunction of their family and communities. And through their, through his false dream for their lives, he told them that it was better to run away from problems than face them. But I share with people that they ask me all the time, how do you stay in the church after losing people in a religious cult? Well, number one, Jim Jones was not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. He was a cult. He was a socialist. Mm. He stomped on the Bible. Mm. He told people that he was their Messiah. Mm. And secondly, what happened in Jonestown happens in America every single day. We run from problems. We fail. We make mistakes. We stay in comfort zones. We ignore red flags. We stay in abusive relationships. We fight bouts of depression. We die prematurely taking our dreams to the grave. But we have an opportunity to rewrite, as we talked earlier, the chapters in our lives. We may not be able to change our family history, but we can restore it. Yes. And when God restores something, he never repeats the old. He makes it better than new. Better than new. I love that. I love that. Man, that is so powerful. I am still just processing everything that you just said. When you talked about your family history and you said, you know, I grew up without a dad and you confronted your dad. I was like, oh man, that was intense. This was before you just said that story where you're watching as a boy, you're watching this cult operate from the inside and you've gone through all this cult experience your mother's had these visions she's kind of saved both of you from this jim jones character who is crazy and then you're growing up without dad you had a lot of different choices to make at that time you saw this violence and fear and threats and intimidation and i think you could have easily gone that way you were you didn't have a dad you could have easily gone a different way but what kind of pushed you into moving into a healthy direction that really allowed you to grow and thrive. And that's coming out of a very difficult childhood. You know, when it first happened, I remember like yesterday, again, the heart knows no time, right? Right. And how we observe things occurs by five or six. I was eight years old when mm. it happened. And I remember going into the living room at night, watching when you see Star Wars, you see the wording from Star Wars kind of go up the screen. Mm -hmm. I remember watching the names of family members, the names of my cousins pass on that screen. Mm -hmm. And I remember at a very young age saying to them that I wanted to live the life that was stolen from them, mm -hmm. that they never had to live. I wanted to find a way to fulfill the dreams all in one, if I could, that they would never be able to pursue. And so as a young age, I think that drove me. That's why at 16, I was, a, I was an advice columnist. Not sure how the advice was. If you're listening, you got it. It didn't work. I apologize. But, but I remember having that desire to help young people at a very young age after seeing my young cousins lose their life. Mm. I got involved in youth ministry early because of that. Again, still making my own mistakes in life, going to church 
on a Sunday, but in the club on Saturday, hmm. still struggling with identity and who I was going to be as a man. And I remember growing up and all this with my mom there and she tried to, God bless her heart, do the best that she could without a father. And when I got married, my, my wife would say things like, man, it must've been really tough not having a mother and father. I said, no, I was fine. I had my mother. She was my mother and my father. And she took care of it all. And I was in this sort of denial, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I remember Dallas being in a men's conference years down the road and my pastor stops by and he kisses me on the cheek and he says, I'm kissing you on the cheek because you've never experienced the kiss of a father. Mm. You never experienced a father telling you that he loves you and I want you to know I love you. And I just started crying uncontrollably. Mm. And I grabbed tissue and I would wipe and the tears would continue to flow. And it was in that season I realized that I had diminished or minimized some things that had taken place in my life. I'd minimized the impact of an absent father in my life. And too often we minimize the effects of tragedy and trauma that's impacted us. And we say things like, well, that was then, this is now. Right, right. Or as I mentioned earlier, well, it is what it is. We say things like, well, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't want to talk about that anymore. But then why does it hurt? Yeah. Why do we still get angry or triggered or reminded of some of those things? And I've learned over the course of time that unless we confront the giants in our past, generational giants passed down to us, we will tolerate toxic behavior in relationships today and teach our kids to do the same thing. And so it really took a while just really growing up out of that. The season I'm in now, I can honestly tell you, I just came into this season probably four years ago. That's amazing. So I would say what you're, what you said is very impactful because one of the things when you're talking about, it's almost like people would choose to just want to be done with whatever the issue was. Like if they had crummy childhood or if they've gone through a messy divorce or a death of a loved one or a loss of something it's the tragedy just a tragedy it's uh, some people may respond instead of trying to kill that giant and just and be okay with saying i'm going to deal with this now i'm going to i'm going to open up i'm going to open up the box and deal with it they would just rather say i want it to be over because it's hard enough to have gone through it and I'm just going to push that down and I'm not going to deal with that right now. And then it just starts coming out and leaking out in all these other areas. And it takes, I think, a it's lot a of coping mechanism. Yeah, it's a yeah. coping mechanism. Yeah. But yes. the problem is that it's just coping. It's not actually dealing with it. Yes. Uh, there's, Willie yes. Nelson had this song I heard, I guess, a couple of years ago. And it was one of his newer songs. I, I didn't even know he was still writing songs, but it said it was a title. It said, it's not something you get over. It's something you get through. And I was like, oh, I love that. oh that is good stuff. I love that. And so it's I like when, you, when you're talking about that, uh, you know, it, that resonated with me because you have to get through stuff. Sometimes it's not just something you just push away. You, and then I think it takes a lot of courage to say, I'm going to face this giant and I'm going to open it up and it's going to be ugly and messy and I'm going to get through it. 
versus that I'm going to suppress it, put it down. And I think especially, I think men would struggle, I think sometimes struggle with that more because there's this identity that they have to be like Rambo or whatever the latest <laughs> action figure is, that that they have to be that image. Mr. Tough, they can't express some things that they just dealt with that was crummy, you know? So, yes, very good. That's and very good. in Jonestown, there was a sign that hung over Jim Jones's chair and the bodies that were had died that, that day before when they arrived they saw this sign that said those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it and so i've learned in my own life that time doesn't heal but god heals and what was broken by men or by your perpetrator or by the person who rejected you because we can pass rejection to the next generation. We can pass abandonment that we've experienced to the next generation. But everything broken by people can be restored by Jesus. And I just get encouraged when I talk about that because, man, regardless of the past, our family history today is still being written by us. Mm. That's great. Just think of that credit story I shared with you earlier. Regardless of that credit score, I was still writing my credit history. Yes. And our family history is still being written by us. History is the study of change over time. Change is something different than what occurred in the past. And it comes suddenly when opposites push against each other. And when we push against our history to be the best in our generation, we become history makers. Hmm. We have the ability to change the things that have transpired and have been passed down and passed down for generations. A friend of mine was estranged from his adult children and he was really angry at the estrangement. And I shared with him, his wife had shared with me, my husband doesn't know how to apologize. He has a British background and he never heard his father tell him he loved him or say, I'm sorry, a day in his life. Mm. And I looked at her in clear, with clear, transparent eyes, with tears in my eyes. And I said to her, isn't it awesome that we get to change that mm. in our generation? That's very encouraging. And that's why I wrote the book, Be a Giant Killer, to defy the family history that keeps repeating itself in generations. I love that. I love that. And I love your thoughts on, you, you made a, a quote before we got on the show about not depriving your kids of the blueprint for accomplishing their dreams. And it was like, I'm going to be the parent that's going to be engaged, that's going to show them the way. And I just thought that was awesome. I thought that was an awesome idea. And it goes with what you're saying now. It's like, we're creating our future. We're creating new histories. And I just think that's super encouraging. I think that it's our duty. It's our responsibility. One of my favorite quotes is Mitch Albom, who says, love is how we stay alive even after we're gone. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So our kids have been observing how to process things in life since age five or six, I wrote Be a Giant Killer because I realized that my kids were carrying some things from their childhood into adulthood. How did I know that? Because there were some things that I carried right. that I needed to hear from 
parents and caregivers that I had not heard in my childhood. And as a 45 year old man struggled with it today. And so my wife and I have just determined that we're going to leave a legacy of love, no matter what, no matter how far our kids may run, no matter what they might do, we want we never want them to question how extravagant and present our love is for them. Mm. When they put me in the ground, Dallas, I never want them to question how much they were prized, mm. cherished, chased, and loved because, watch this, fathers chase their sons and daughters. Mm. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. That's a good word. Very good word. And I would say, too, if you are leading a team, if you're leading an organization, if you have people that are under your care, no matter if it's a for-profit business, if it's a Fortune 500 company, or if it's a nonprofit or ministry, you have the opportunity to engage with people. We're not saying you need to be a counselor to everyone and a trained therapist. That's not what we're saying. But I am saying this, that you have no idea many times what a pat on the back or a compliment or reward or some type of just recognition would do for other people because they may have not heard that or been a part of that or maybe wounded by that somewhere in their whole life and that someone stepping in the gap, even if it's not their parent, to believe in them, to see their potential, to see where they could go and what they could do, could make all the difference. And it's not that you have to go back and solve their past, but it is something that you can do to help them write a new and better future. And I think that's a challenge for every leader and every coach and every parent. I think your words will resonate with a lot of people on that. And thank you for sharing that. I so appreciate you just for saying that, because I was thinking to myself now, as you were talking, man, of our impact and influence in the workplace. I was at a men's conference some years ago, and they challenged us to write our life story and tell it to our wives. Mm. And they said, you get to determine how transparent you be. And they ended by saying, tell your wife your story because your story is her story. Mm. She's been living it. Mm. And if I can leave something for the business leaders today, it's this. People relive the stories we don't tell. And so as you make a decision to tell your story, you give permission, people permission to share their story. Mm. Because whatever we want to do in this industry, we need three things. We need influence, we need authority, and we need permission. And what we do with our influence, what people know about us, what we do with our authority, what people demand from us determines the permission that we get. How do we earn influence? We earn influence in our industry by helping people, being a resource, being selfless. We learn or gain influence by building trust and giving ourselves away, expecting nothing in return. I started this entire organization just by doing free talks, giving free advice out, becoming oh, yeah. an expert by giving myself away, expecting nothing in return. My, my honorarium that I charge now is anywhere between three to $5,000 for a keynote, but it started free wow. 20 something years ago. Wow. 
And even today, there's certain sessions I'll do absolutely free to give myself away to individuals that may not have the budget to bring me in because mm. I understand that unexpected generosity catches people off guard. Mm. And when people trust you, they will give you permission to do your finest work, to do awesome work so that an industry can stand in all of you, to be so mm. remarkable that people remark about you to other individuals. And so at our company, we teach our people to serve their way into the hearts of our provider members, mm. to take upon that mantle and that duty to constantly retell the story that they're living, that they're editing and rewriting for the next generation. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. If you're listening today and you missed what he just said, the unexpected generosity is such a powerful concept. And I think I would love to challenge our listeners to ask themselves, when is the last time that you just gave yourself away for something? Just gave yourself away. It's just, it's a free gift, a free act of generosity. I love how you say that you charge for the value you provide in sharing your story and all this and speaking. And I know that your calendar stays booked up because you do such a good job and you're so well-spoken. But I also love how you say, but there's sometimes that I just need to give myself away and I'll do it at no cost. And I think that's so important, not just for, for how we help others. And I think that is a, I think whenever something is unexpected, I think there's so much power. There's so much power in that because it isn't expected. Yes. And so the, it's not like one yes. plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals a hundred. It's just amazing the impact that has on people. And they're that much more appreciative and they're that much more to pass it on and, and do that as well. But I think too, it's the value that it gives to you and the value that it gives to you inside. And as you're writing and rewriting and adding your story, how powerful that is to us individually. When we do give that away, there's that peace and there's that joy that comes from that we just can't buy. There's not an amount of money that you can ascribe to that same feeling of peace and joy that you get when you're able to give some unexpected generosity. So if you haven't, Think Move, think move Thrive and, and Last 10% listeners, please go out there and do something. Make it a point this next week or this next month to do something unexpected for somebody. Do something unexpected. If you do that, reach out to me and ping me on LinkedIn. Let us know. Let us know how that goes. We'd love to hear about it. All right. So, Ed, we've talked about your book. We've talked about your amazing history. We've just talked about everything that you're, you've gone through and how you have come and triumph in terms of rewriting that story and that new history. I just love, I love how you've worded that, put that together today, and how you engage so intentionally with your kids and your family, with your work, your team at work. I just, all that is fantastic. Thank Tell you. people how they can get, a, in, get in touch with you, how they can touch base with you and what you're doing today. I love, love to connect with your listeners on LinkedIn. That's a great place of business for us that we have the ability to impact people who have been in our training sessions or people that we've touched through podcasts. I'm on all social media channels, though. You can look up Ed Norwood on LinkedIn. On Instagram, as Champions Unleashed. Facebook is Ed Norwood. But LinkedIn is where we primarily connect with business leaders. Don't just follow me there. Connect with me. I'd love to grow with you. And you'll see some a link there where you can actually access the book, Be a Giant Killer, How to Overcome 
their everyday Goliaths as well. I love that. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well, a link to your LinkedIn. And one last question. We always ask this to every person, every guest on the last 10%, who is someone that you would like to hear on the last 10%. Definitely author and pastor Tory Roberts. He's an author and businessman. He also pastors a church as well, but he has a tremendous gift in impacting the lives of business men and women of how to transform their organization through influence. I've learned through his leadership principles. Just I heard him once and I just learned so much about how imperative it is that we be legacy builders. And so I'd love to see Torrey come. I'm going to connect you guys through a text message or you guys can talk. But I'd love to see him on this show. I think he'd be a, a huge benefit to your listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. We will definitely reach out and get Mr. Torrey Roberts in. That sounds like an awesome, epic episode. So thank you again, Ed, for being on The Last 10%. We just appreciate your spirit. We appreciate your service. Thank you for sharing and giving unexpected generosity to those around you and just a great deal of wisdom to all of us at the last 10%. So thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for joining us today on the last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.